So I'm with my coworkers walking by this dumpster, and I see this perfectly good French bistro chair in the dumpster. <laughs> and immediately I'm like, no, that's Britney's. Like, that's birthday gift. Done. If y'all only knew how often I talk about French bistro chairs, like, and how I take pictures of them when I'm in Paris or like any anywhere, and like the ones I I have a couple on my patio that I got on Facebook Marketplace, and they they're really torn up. They're not in great condition, but I got them both for ten bucks because these chairs are like two to three hundred dollars a piece. But mine are old restaurant ones. Yeah. Well, this one it's there's a restaurant that's in the same building. It's just on the first floor um, of where I work, and I've always loved their bistro chairs. I think when the restaurant first opened, I took pictures of the chairs and sent them to you, and was like, "Brittany, I think look. you did." And so I saw this one in the dumpster. It was perfectly good. And so I gave my leftover food from lunch to my coworker, and I was like, "Hold this! I'm grabbing that chair." Hopped <laughs> in the dumpster, pulled it out. <laughs> Like, I'm on my lunch break. I'm going back to the office. <laughs> yeah. And I pulled this chair out, and the only thing wrong with it is one of the screws had come out on the seat. That was it. Yeah. So I was like, no, this is Brittany's birthday gift. Fast forward, like, two days, and one of my neighbors is getting rid of their TV. And it's like a 42-inch Sony flat screen. Like, it's a good TV. They were getting rid of it because they just got a new one. And my apartment's right across the hall from the, like, trash room. So they set it down outside, and I just picked it up and grabbed it. Because Brittany's been talking about getting a new TV for a couple months. And I was like, oh, birthday gift part two. <laughs> so the story of how I dumpster dove and got Brittany, like, the best birthday gifts ever. I know. Two things that I needed slash wanted. And, y'all, this is why don't be above looking at stuff that people have on the curb. Looking at what you see next to dumpsters. Especially if you live in an apartment complex. Oh, yeah. A lot of the times it's easier for people to just put their stuff by the dumpster and get rid of it. I've picked up so many things and like obviously you look at it you check you i mean you look for the scary bed bug signs if it's cloth mostly probably don't pick up cloth but a lot of things you're fine i don't know at the last apartment i grabbed that amazing chair that i had in my bedroom there's this big nice lounge chair that someone had set by the dumpster and i was like yoink mine so yeah dumpster diving is definitely a great way to get some stuff for free yes it is But hi, you guys. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And guess what, you guys? Guess what? We're actually in person. We're sitting across the same table. (laughs) It's always... I love now when we have these moments where we can actually sit here and record together. It's so different to actually, like, sit here and look at you. I know, and not be looking at just, like, my (laughs) iPad and the laptop and all the things. It's less... I mean, it's like while we're FaceTiming, it's easy to look around at the other things and be talking to you, but, like, staring off to the left. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, Ty is up in Dallas this weekend. We're hanging out. Our mom is here too. Um, she's out this afternoon and we just thought it'd be the perfect time to record. Yeah. And before we jump into our wine and our cases and the episode proper, I want to (laughs) quickly jump into Patreon real quick. So if you haven't had the chance to just head over to patreon.com slash blood and wine podcast. That is where we post our weekly either Murder Mini or Bottle Talk episodes for all of our Patreon supporters. You can check out our different tiers of support, our different rewards, and all all the way from uh, 
shout out on the episode that y'all have heard before. I was thanking y'all to becoming the director of your own episode, getting to pick a topic, and us creating that episode. So if you are interested, if you want to get basically another, we're up to, what, 28 murder minis? Something like that? Yeah, we're about to record 29 after this episode. Yeah. So an extra almost 30 episodes, as well as an extra four or five wine episodes, if you are interested in learning more about wine and diving into that side of things. Yeah. Absolutely check out our Patreon. And while you're at it, be sure you have subscribed to this podcast, Blood and Wine, on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. I know Spotify Podcasts just went live, so now you should be able to um, find everything there. More podcasts are going to join, but we've been there since they started. So mm-hmm. hop on over to Spotify. Beta testing, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's really awesome to like just have podcast on spotify like with your music oh yeah um but also we're google play um stitcher there's player so, fm yeah there's so many is, of them we're there. on a lot of them so the ones where you can subscribe if it's the one you are using make sure you subscribe to us you get notifications for each of our episodes they release every tuesday so you won't miss a single one all right a lot of y'all may have heard about Things that have been in the news lately about podcasts and citing your sources. Mm -hmm. And so one thing, we just wanted to be very open and transparent about this. Y'all know we use other sources. We do always mention at the beginning before our case where we found the information. But we're just going to make sure going forward to be even more specific. Um, The people that are putting these stories together, writing these news articles, this is how we get our information. This is how Mm -hmm. you get your information. And we want to make sure those people are credited. So just wanted to let you guys know, we are also in the process of working on a sources page on our website. That way, for all of our previous episodes if you want to dive in a little bit deeper into the sources that we used you'll be able to go to that page and quickly find the link to whatever source we looked at Um, if it was a book or a movie we'll try to link maybe to amazon for you to purchase the book or to maybe like imdb for the movies something like that so you can find it a lot of documentaries are on youtube if that's where we found it we've already got those links but anyway The information is going to be there for you guys to dive a little bit deeper into how we find our information. And in the meantime, while we get that page built out, if y'all are interested in any of our cases we've done previously and are interested in hearing more about what sources we use, wanting those links, send us an email, message us on social media, and we would be more than happy to send you some of the research we did. Absolutely. So just if if you want to know... Hit us up, bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. Boom. Okay, so now for today's episode. So I picked the topic for this week, and this is one I think Tyler rolled his eyes at me when I first suggested it to him, but it's one that I really think has a lot to it. Um, This week, we are going to be looking at Lover's Lane murders. Okay, so in my (laughs) defense, I have never really looked up lover's lane murders and for me when i think lover's lane murders i think like the creepy campfire story of like they were fucking in the car and heard a scratching and there was a hook on the door and i'm like i don't want to do (laughs) no Brittany. but then when i like she was like this is the topic i was like okay i'll find something 
Wow. First up, if y'all remember way back to our College Town Murders yeah. episode, Brittany's case was a Lover's Lane murder, and mm-hmm. that one was messed up. Yes, and that was the one where it was the murders of David Sloan and Cheryl Benham mm-hmm. that happened there in Norman. And that's one thing about Lover's Lane. Unfortunately, I feel like there are a lot of cities that have a Lover's Lane, and a lot of times there are people that are murdered there. And there is that whole stigma of like the hook on the door or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it is. It's somewhere that people go that everyone knows why people go there. And unfortunately, people sometimes are murdered there. This, you know, I guess if you want to scare your children when they're teenagers, just tell them about Lover's Lane murders. Yeah. Share I, this episode with them. Yeah. They're not going to want to go out there after you this. You know, not <laughs> this is a kid-friendly episode by any means, but, you know... I wonder if there was a lover's lane in the town we grew up in. Because, one, if there was, obviously I was not aware of it. <laughs> I was never invited. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I can't think of any, like, make-out point or lover's lane other than, like, the lake. But, I don't know, that sounds like mosquito heaven. It does. Well, and so, okay, like we've talked about, lover's lanes are places where couples go, they park their car to, like, make out, sometimes have sex, and it's all different types of places. Maybe it's a parking lot in a secluded rural area, or it's a place with, like, really pretty views. You see in the movies where they park yeah. at, like, the, the It's cliff like the under area. the Hollywood sign or whatever. Yeah, and you, like, see the cityscape, and then they have deep conversations or make out. And... Lovers' lanes, they're, they're typically found in cultures that built around the automobile. So it, like, has to do with the car. Um, they often make out in the car or the van for privacy. Mm-hmm. So it's when you don't have another place to go, mm-hmm. you go in your car. Well, I mean, it's a very, uh, like, America thing. Totally. Obviously, other places have, like, lovers' lane type areas. But I think it's something that is very closely tied with the Americana culture and concept definitely so we will be talking about two really crazy cases that happened at lover's lanes yes we will but before we get into our cases probably i don't know my favorite thing about the episode is the wine because (laughs) i I mean the other parts they're not really favorite parts it's more it's informational well that's the other thing i did want to i meant to mention this earlier when we were talking about sources so before you get into the wine i do just want to remind you guys obviously We're not investigators. We're not professionals. We have a... (laughs) (laughs) No, we are not professionals. (laughs) We have a passion for true crime, which I know a lot of you guys do as well. And so we bring these cases to y'all as an informational aspect. It's, Mm -hmm. It's to make you aware. And also because... There's this odd macabre fascination that a lot of people have, including myself, with true crime. And for me, we've talked about, like, me as a woman. It's, like, this protection thing. But it's also just the whole psychological, Mm -hmm. like, why. The big question, why. And so, essentially, we're putting these out into the atmosphere asking why. Mm -hmm. And other people, y'all are listening, probably asking similar questions that we are. And... Anyway, just wanted to make the point, like, we know we're not professionals, we're not trying to be, we just are really fascinated with true crime. Yeah, I mean, we're, we definitely take more the route of, like, awareness as opposed to any kind of, like, investigative journalism on our part. Absolutely. Sometimes in our sources, we will absolutely use investigative journalistic sources, but... I mean, you're not going to find me out in the woods with, like, a flashlight and a DNA test kit solving crimes. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> a 
All right. Now, let's talk about the wine because this has been a long time since we've actually got to share a bottle of wine together. Yes. So this is going to be a real cheers. Yeah, yeah. Real yeah. clink. I know. Not our double clink. clink I clink. know. In in case y'all are confused about how we cheers, <laughs> um, we just cheers ourselves, like in one hand the glass, in the other hand the bottle, and just kind of clink in our hands. It's very sad. Yeah, that's why we sit alone. But hey, not today. Not today. So the wine that we're going to be enjoying today is the 2016 Bulgariana Gamza, <laughs> which... <laughs> Sounds like they opened for Ariana Grande um, on her newest tour, but it is not a famous pop star. It is a wine. <laughs> yes. And a less known wine. I honestly had never heard of this grape ever. And I saw it at the store and I was like, wait, wait, what is this? Is this like a gamay, but they call it a gamza? No, it's something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got this one at Total Wine and we're really excited to try it. So the grape varietal in this wine is the Gamza grape, and this is a red grape variety that has been cultivated in northern Bulgaria since ancient times. It can also be found under the name Kadarka in most other Balkan countries, Romania, Hungary, and Slovakia. So you might be asking yourself, like, oh, I don't think I've ever heard of, like, a Bulgarian wine or, you know, something from, like, the Balkan region. And honestly, I hadn't really thought about it either, but I know that Germany produces a lot of wines, Austria is known for wines, you know, there's a lot of, like, Rieslings and stuff in that area, so it's not too far distance-wise, but, right. I mean, Greek people drank wine by the gallon back in the day, so it's actually not as uncommon as you might first think. Which, I mean, I drink wine by the gallon as well. I mean, same. So... We're just, we're basically ancient Greek people. Yes, yes. So, the Gamza grape is not very resilient to low winter temperatures, but it also does prefer cooler climates, which is one of the reasons why it is mostly cultivated in northern Bulgaria. So, the Gamza grape is used to produce both table and dessert red wines. These wines are full-bodied and harmonious, but their quality is very dependent on the climatic conditions, especially in the autumn before the harvest. So when the autumn is dry and warm, the wines from Gamza have a livid but not very dense ruby color, a pleasant taste of small red fruits, most notably raspberry, and a distinct freshness and delicate tannins. So one thing to note, and this of course, is a generalization, but usually drier climates produce more, like, powerful flavors in wine because the grapes themselves are more concentrated. So if you think of a wine from a drier area, something like Chile is going to have very, like, kind of punch-you-in-the-mouth flavors, whereas something from a wetter climate, such as, like, Oregon and the Willamette Valley, will be a little more subdued on their flavors. Something fun to note, because there's more water in the grapes, less concentrated. Yeah. So this wine in particular, it is made from 100% indigenous Gamsa grape, and this Bulgarian wine is a red-violet color in your glass. It has aromas of blackberry and dried sage, and in the mouth, the flavors 
are notes of cranberry, tart cherry, and pomegranate. Ooh. Oh, I'm excited to try this. I know. Uh, notes. So cranberry is my favorite, basically, flavor of everything. Yeah, it is. So I'm so excited. <laughs> um, this wine is also bright on entry with very pronounced fruit flavors, and it has a pleasant herbaceous finish. So I'm I'm almost getting Thanksgiving vibes. Cranberry and sage and things like that. It is very Thanksgiving-y. So I'm excited. I don't know what this pairs well with, but I have decided right here and now it pairs well with turkey and gravy. There you go. All right. Well, let's pop this baby open and give it a try. There's part of me that's always a little bit nervous when we try a completely new... It's like this nervous excitement. Yeah. Oh, wow, this cork is deep in there. <laughs> I know. You're having a little bit of a trouble over there. Yeah. Getting it out. Wow. Full strength. I'm glad you, you're here to open this. Because <laughs> I also need a new wine opener. I, you, you do. I have the key one. Is that a key one? No, it's the no, wing one. No, this is wings. Yeah, I have the wings. But... um. Alright, think think we're gonna I think get I got, this? I think I got it. <laughs> there All we go. Right. Cork smell good? Cork smell scary? Cork looks scary. <laughs> <laughs> she bent. <laughs> oh, a little to the left. I've never seen a cork that was like that. It just must well, have been impacted a little bit at an angle, but it doesn't look like the wine's corked. Like it still just has the wine on the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. We should put a photo of the mystery. Uh, this special cork on our Instagram when we post this wine. Wow. I feel like I can smell that from here. I mean, that is sage and cranberry. Like, Let me, let me smell. Interesting. It smells good. I'm excited. Me too. Pour our glasses. Ooh. Yeah, that's ruby. That's, that's deep. And I'm pouring proper glasses this time. I'm not filling them to the top because <laughs> I'm in public. <laughs> I mean, we're in my apartment. This is definitely not public. Well, there's multiple animals watching me. <laughs> Those are basically even first try. Honestly, I'm, I'm not proud gonna, of myself. I'm not going to bitch at you for trying to not give me as much wine. Wow. I definitely smell the sage. Yeah. And the pomegranate. Am I supposed to smell those or taste them? I don't know. You tell me. Blackberry and sage is apparently what we're supposed to smell. I get the sage. I well, mean, blackberry, yeah. I definitely get the blackberry. Kind of smells like... This smells... Getting cobbler vibes. It doesn't smell sweet. It smells really good. Let's cheers. I want to try this. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. I'm getting that cranberry. Oh, yes. But Definitely like, getting... But like real, real... Like the cranberry that you can't really drink because you bought it from a health food store. Or you got it at Trader Joe's and a tiny bottle is like $8. And you're yeah. like, oh, cranberry. Holy shit. <laughs> It's definitely not cranberry cocktail, which is the Correct. juice you find at the grocery store. This is definitely solid cranberry juice tasting. Yeah. Um, it, and it has that a little bit of a bite. I, mm-hmm. Maybe I would say that goes with that cranberry. And I'm I'm digging this. I'm not 100% sure if I, if I can identify the sage. I definitely smelled it. Well, the sage was something that was in the aroma specifically. Because in the flavor profile... Or at least the source I found. It was like Wine Insider or something. Yeah. Said cranberry, tart cherry, and pomegranate flavors. I absolutely get the... Tart cherry, yeah. yes. Honestly, and the pomegranate. I'm I'm getting all of them. It's very... It's a very autumnal wine. Like, to me, mm-hmm. this wine tastes like October. It does. I'm a fan. I... Yeah. 
And honestly, I was joking earlier. I think this would go great with turkey. It like, would, yeah. This with, would be a good Thanksgiving wine. Because it's, it's a lighter red. It's not something like a cat. I would say... As far as, like, weight goes, it's definitely a medium-bodied one. Agreed. So... This isn't your heavy cab. Yeah. It's, it's more, like, medium like a zen. I'm so into this wine. Bulgaria. You're killing it. You go, Bulgaria. Bulgariana Gamza. Gamza. Again, I just think that Bulgariana Gamza is going to be performing at Eurovision <laughs> this year, so... Okay. Well, we have our wine... We've talked about our topic, so now I'm going to jump into my Lover's Lane murder. Okay. Okay, so when you think of Lover's Lane murders, I kind of took the classic one. I picked the Zodiac. Did not know that was a Lover's Lane murder. I mean... It is. I I guess I did. I just didn't think about it as... But you don't necessarily think of it in that vein. I get it. No. The source I used is called The Zodiac, A Timeline by Michael Butterfield, and it's on the History Stories on the History Channel's website, history.com. So History, history. All the history. Um, this timeline and the way that it was structured was so perfect. Like, Michael really laid this out because The Zodiac is, he's a murderer that takes, this doesn't take a lot to cover. There are a lot of different things or a lot of different nuances. So here we go. So in July 1969, the San Francisco Examiner newspaper got a letter, and it had very chilling words that were uh, depicted in this coded message. And once they decoded it, it said, I like killing people because it's so much fun, which is so simplistic and so chilling. I know. It's, it's, It's a terrifying sentence. So the sender was soon to be notorious Zodiac, who was a serial killer who terrorized Northern California in the late 1960s and early 1970s with a combination of like very gruesome murders, bizarre public letters and threats that he would send to the police and the newspapers with all these different demands. And all of these letters were written in this mysterious cipher and it would tease his identity throughout the whole thing in all of these letters. However, yes, oh, that was my closing. You just stole it. Sorry. So the identity of the Zodiac Killer, it's it's stumped law enforcement. It is still officially unknown today. It's been five decades since his crimes. And the Zodiac is officially connected to five murders and two attempted murders. However, he hinted at killing at least 37 victims. So after Zodiac taunted the police and the public with nearly two dozen different letters, like this, a, a ton of letters, he was sending them all the time. Uh, he then seemed to vanish in the 70s. He just all, he just disappeared. Huh. But his, his legacy endures and it inspired three real life copycat killers dozens of books tv shows and movies there's like a movie i think it's just called zodiac and it has um jake gyllenhaal in from like it. the 2000s yeah yeah it's I a really good now. one i recommend it so in june 1963 in santa barbara robert domingos and his fiance linda edwards were seniors at lompoc high school in santa barbara county in southern california in early june the two of them decided to use Senior Ditch Day to go to a beach near uh, the state park. I went to the state fair on my Senior Ditch Day. Really? I th- yeah, it was that was our school tradition. Oh. Because the, the fair, it was like the first Tuesday of the fair was like 
I think if you have like a school ID, you get in free. I honestly and that don't was even remember. Senior Ditch Day was. I don't remember Senior Ditch Day like at all. I don't even know if I got permission. <laughs> I don't know, Mama. Let me know if I got permission. I think I just <laughs> left. <laughs> you just like revealed a secret. Maybe not a real bad one. So by Wednesday, the two of them had both not returned home, and so Robert's father. He went to the beach and he was horrified to discover their bodies lying together inside the remains of a crumbling shack. So there's a shack there on the beach and their bodies were there. And he, his dad found them? His dad found them. They were bound with rope and had apparently tried to escape, but they were shot and killed. Robert had been shot 11 times and Linda had been shot 9 times. That is... So many. It's extremely violent. And the killer then dragged the bodies to the shack where he tried and failed to start a fire. So the plan was to just burn it down. Yeah. Investigators had very few leads and the case started to get cold. But in 1972, the Santa Barbara County Sheriff's Department announced a possible Zodiac connection. So now we're going to go back a little bit in time. So one thing is you'll notice as I'm going through this, I'm going to focus on each different set of victims um, separately. Uh, So this timeline will jump around a little bit. I will try to keep it in order as much as I can. But again, like I said, the Zodiac spanned such a long period of time and there was so much activity and there's a lot to put together. Lots of puzzle pieces that put together uh, to set this case up. Yeah. So... His second part of his spree was in October 1966 in Riverside. So 18-year-old Sherry Josephine Bates lived with her father, Joseph, and she was a student at Riverside City College in Riverside, California. And on this day in October, she left a note for her dad that read, Dad went to the RCC library. So she's like going to study or something. Mm -hmm. But the next morning, her Volkswagen Beetle was found abandoned in the library parking lot and her body was lying nearby between two houses. She had been stabbed several times, and her throat was slashed. Oh. So this was a different weapon used than in the first case, and when police got to the scene, they found a man's Timex watch at the scene, a print from a military boot, and some hairs in dried blood on the victim's hand. I get the strong feeling that that was not the watch was not there by accident kind of thing no i don't think you leave something like that there by accident um sherry joe's purse was intact and an autopsy revealed that no evidence of sexual assault had been done on her Uh, about one month after the murder the local newspaper in the police department received typewritten letters titled the confession from someone who claimed to be the killer and so these were not written in any type of cipher this was a typed out letter And the author of the letter wrote, Miss Bates was stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb and added, I'm not sick. I'm insane. In April 1967, the newspaper, the police, and Joseph Bates, her father, received virtually identical handwritten letters. So these are handwritten. And they said, Bates had to die. There will be more. And they were signed with a symbol that resembled the letter Z. Again, not in a cipher, just written out. Yeah. In 1969, Riverside police contacted some investigators in Northern California regarding the similarities they had in their case with the Zodiac crimes that were happening in other parts of the state. And Cheryl Wood Morrill, who was the documents examiner for the California Department of Justice, concluded that Zodiac was responsible for the notes linked to the Bates case. 
So she looked them over and was like, yep, this is the same person. So this Riverside connection was later revealed to the public by Paul Avery, who was a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Then Zodiac sent a letter to the Los Angeles Times confirming the theory that he'd killed Bates. And he wrote, I do have to give them credit for stumbling across my Riverside activity, but they're only finding the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there. Years later, Riverside police rejected the Zodiac theory and focused on a man who they said was a jilted former lover of Bates. In the late 1990s, police got a DNA sample from this suspect to compare to some of the DNA on those hairs that were found at the crime scene. The DNA didn't match. The suspect denied any involvement in the murder. So there's this back and forth. Was it Zodiac? Was it not? This Mm -hmm. was one of the ones where... We add this into the 37. Because again, this wasn't Lover's Lane. This was a single victim Mm -hmm. and it was a different murder weapon. But there were still so many similarities with the letters. And the letter from Zodiac saying, oh, I did it. But that's not necessarily evidence that he did. I mean, it's not. He could have seen this murder in the newspaper and been like, I'm going to send a letter saying I did it. So it's December 20th, 1968. About five nights before Christmas... High school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday set out on their first official date together. They promised Betty Lou's parents that they'd be home by 11 p.m. Shortly after that time, passing motorists saw the Rambler and its occupants parked at a Lover's Lane spot along Lake Herman Road in Benicia, California. Moments later, another driver noticed two seemingly lifeless bodies on the side of the road. The Benicia police and others responded to the scene and discovered Betty Lou dead with five bullet wounds in her back. David was found next to the Rambler with a bullet wound to his head, but he was still breathing extremely near death, though. I will never understand how people can survive being shot through the brain. Me either. The human body is confusing. Extremely. Bullet holes were all over the car's roof and the back window, indicating that maybe the killer had fired a few warning shots to force the victims out of the vehicle. Investigators believed that the two teenagers were likely random targets killed by a stranger for unknown reasons. But could have been Zodiac. On July 4th, 1969, 22-year-old Darlene Farron was a wife, mother, and a very popular waitress at a Vallejo restaurant. On the night of July 4th, she picked up her friend Michael Mangio, and stopped in a parking lot of Blue Rock Springs Park. Michael later told police that another vehicle pulled into the lot around midnight and then left and then returned a few minutes later. The driver got out of the car, shined a really bright light, and fired into the car with a 9mm handgun. Michael was shot in the jaw, shoulder, and leg. Darlene was hit several times. At 12.40pm, A call that was later traced to a gas station payphone. A man rang the police and claimed responsibility for the shooting, as well as for the murders on Lake Herman Road. According to the police dispatcher, the caller spoke in a very, like, low, monotonous voice and said, I want to report a murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm lugger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Darlene died on arrival at the hospital, but Michael survived. Investigators were unable to identify any viable suspects. And this is when one of the Zodiac letters comes in. 
So in a letter to the Vallejo Times Herald, postmarked July 31st, 1969, so later that same month, this attack happened on July 4th, the letter claimed responsibility for the two shootings and provided details about the victims, the weapons, the number of shots fired, and the brand of ammunition. Then more letters are starting to pour into the newspapers. The second letter was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle, also on July 31st, 1969. This is one of three virtually identical letters accompanied by one-third of a cipher, and the letter demanded publication of the letters and ciphers by Friday, August 1st. The San Francisco Examiner received a letter on the same day, and in this letter, the killer threatened to kill again if newspapers did not publish the cipher, which included the words, I like killing people because it's so much fun, like we talked about at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then also, a three-page letter was received by the examiner on August 4th, 1969, and it was sent in response to police asking for information to prove the writer actually committed the murders. And this is the first time the writer of these letters used the name The Zodiac. So now we're in September, September 27th, 1969. On a Saturday night... College students Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were relaxing at the shore of Lake Berryessa, about 30 miles north of Napa in California, and a man appeared holding a gun and wearing a hooded costume with a white crossed circle stitch over the chest. And I feel like we've all seen this zodiac symbol and outfit, and there are tons of sketches that you can find online of this hooded costume that he's wearing so he explained to the two of them that he had escaped from prison and he needed money in a car to escape to mexico he ended up binding their wrists with pre-cut lengths of plastic clothesline and without warning he plunged a large knife into brian's back six times he then stabbed cecilia 10 times as she fought for her life the man then walked to brian's car used a pen to draw a circle with the cross in it, and then he wrote 27, 69, and the time, 6.30, and then the notation, by knife. So essentially, he was making sure that investigators or anyone that came upon the scene knew it was the Zodiac, the 27th, 1969, 6.30, killed him with a knife. So this was essentially his fifth letter, quote-unquote. Jesus. At 7.40 p.m., a man called the Napa Police Department to report a double murder, and the caller described Brian's car, directed police to the scene, and confessed, oh, I'm the one who did it. So they're getting this call being like, oh my god, this guy must have stumbled upon it. And he's like, oh, I'm, I, it was me. Yeah, and again, a payphone was used, this time near a car wash there in Napa. Cecilia passed away two days later, but Brian survived. It was concluded that the door message was written by the same author of the Zodiac Letters. October 11th, 1969. Paul Stein, he was a 28-year-old student, he was a husband, and he worked as a cab driver in San Francisco. One night, he picked up a fare headed for a destination in the upscale Presidio Heights neighborhood, and at the intersection of Washington and Cherry Streets, the passenger shot Stein in the head and removed a piece of the victim's shirt. Oh, fuck. The man got out, walked away just before police arrived, but the police radio broadcast mistakenly described the subject as a black man. And so officers passing 
dismissed a white man resembling the correct description. Fingerprints found on the driver's side of the cab may have belonged to the killer, and a sketch was produced based on the descriptions provided by a few witnesses in the area. And this case was considered a routine robbery until the office of the San Francisco Chronicle received an envelope with a letter from the Zodiac, which began with the words, I'm the murderer of the taxi driver. The envelope also contained a blood-stained piece of Paul Stein's shirt, and the Zodiac denied he left any fingerprints and claimed the police sketch was inaccurate because he wore a disguise. So you couldn't have seen him anyway. The writer mocked police for failing to catch him and threatened to shoot children on a school bus. This was letter number six. More letters continue. The Chronicle received another letter on November 8th, 1969, which contained yet another piece of the cab driver's shirt, a humorous greeting card, and another cipher consisting of 340 symbols. The writer also added dis, july, aug, septip, like, like the abbreviations for the months. So like mm-hmm. July, Aug, Sept, Oct equals seven, which is a possible reference to more unidentified victims. So maybe it means like July, August, September, and October. I killed seven, but we don't know. Next, the Chronicle got a seven page letter postmarked on July 9th. So the very next day, and this was the longest message from Zodiac. And he claimed that police stopped him near a crime scene, but let him go. And he also included a bomb recipe and a diagram of the explosive. So he's literally just doing everything he can. Like the threats to like, oh, I'm going to shoot up a school bus. Oh, here's a bomb. So I could like make this and put it anywhere. He's literally just putting fear in every way, shape and form. Then famous attorney Melvin Belly uh, received a letter postmarked December 20th, 1969 and The writer was afraid that he would kill again and asked Belly to intercede. The letter ended, please help me. I cannot remain in control much longer, which um, I beg to differ. He's not in any control at all. Yeah. So March 22nd, 1970 in the Modesto area on a Sunday afternoon, Kathleen Johns packed her infant daughter into a station wagon and left San Bernardino to visit her sick mom in Peltaluma, which was in the north northern part of the state. Mm-hmm. Kathleen was also seven months pregnant with the child of her longtime boyfriend, and she traveled on Highway 132 near Modesto. Another vehicle pulled alongside her station wagon, and the driver appeared to signal that Kathleen should pull over. Like, maybe point at her tires, mm-hmm. like, you need to pull over. And then on the side of the road... The driver explained that the back wheel of Kathleen's station wagon was loose, but he said he could fix the problem. Instead, he loosened the lug nuts and the wheel fell off as Kathleen tried to drive away. The man then offered to drive Kathleen to a gas station, but she climbed into his car and discovered he appeared to have other plans. She claimed he also made veiled threats to harm her child, and eventually Kathleen grabbed her daughter and jumped out of the car. Oh my god. God. A passing driver took t- Kathleen to a nearby police station where she identified the stranger from a police sketch of the Zodiac. Months later, the Zodiac letter mentioned a rather interesting ride, quote unquote, with a woman and her baby. He just has so many different MOs. I mean, one moment yeah. he's shooting people on Lover's Lane. Another moment he's kidnapping a mother on the side of the road in broad daylight. Another he's like stabbing people. Like, that's... There's just not 
a consistency about it. No, and it seems as if he is not partial to the lover's lane. He seems to, like, frequently go back there. Yeah. But he's finding other avenues. Killing taxi drivers, threatening to kill children on school bus, kidnapping this mother and her daughter and threatening them. And at this point in time, in the spring of 1970, the letters are just continuing to flood in. So the Chronicle got another letter on April 20th, which had a 13-symbol cipher and a diagram of a bomb designed to kill children on a school bus. So again, with the children on the school bus threats. Zodiac denied responsibility for a recent police station bombing that had killed an officer. So that's the other thing. With him doing all these different things, what's him? What's a copycat? What's something completely unrelated? Yeah. It's hard to know. On April 28th, he sent a greeting card to the Chronicle, and inside this card, he demanded publication of his bomb threats and insisted that the police of the San Francisco Bay Area wear Zodiac buttons featuring his chosen symbol, this crossed circle. They received another letter on June 26th. So they're all of his letters, for the most part, they're going to the Chronicle. He does send some to the examiner, to the police stations, to individuals. But the Chronicle seems to get the majority of them. Yeah. This one contained a map of San Francisco Bay Area with a cross circle on the peak of Mount Diablo and a code to locate the Zodiac's bomb. The writer claimed that he'd killed again. July 24th, Chronicle receives another letter. And in this letter, the Zodiac complained that people weren't wearing his cross circle Zodiac buttons. And he claimed that... He was responsible for the failed abduction of pregnant mother Kathleen Johns on March 22nd. So this is where he puts that like, you know, oh, the mom and her baby like yeah. had an interesting ride. July 26th, a five page letter came to the Chronicle. And in this, Zodiac described torturing his victims and quoted from the Gilbert and Sullivan musical, The Mikado. The letter also explained that the Mount Diablo code concerned geometric angles known as radians. He is off his rocker. He is yeah. just, he's, I think he's getting frustrated that they're not taking it super seriously. I mean, his ciphers were posted in the newspapers, like they were following his instructions, but not to his liking. Yeah. So then on September 6th, 1970, you know, my birthday. Oh. Huh. 17 years before I was actually born, <laughs> uh, a postcard attributed to the Zodiac featured an advertisement for a condominium project in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, with phrases, past Lake Tahoe areas and sought victim 12. Some interpreted the cryptic message as a clue to the disappearance of 25-year-old Donna Lass. Uh, in May of 1970, Donna worked in San Francisco at Letterman General Hospital, which was located on a military base near the area where the Zodiac killed the cab driver. Mm -hmm. Donna moved northeast to South Lake Tahoe and found work as a nurse for the Sahara Hotel and Casino. And on September 6, 1970, Donna vanished sometime after the last entry in her work logbook around 1.50 a.m. Her car was later found abandoned near her apartment, and according to some accounts, an unidentified man called Donna's employer and her landlord, claiming that she had to leave town due to a family emergency. Donna's family, though, told authorities there was no emergency, and this man who made that call was never identified. Investigators suspected that Donna had been abducted and killed, but her body was also never found. 
Her disappearance remained a mystery, and her name was added to the, this very long list we have of possible Zodiac victims. Later in 1970, more letters. Because again, like I said, he ended up sending about two dozen of them. Jeez. We're now on 15. So, suspected Zodiac postcard was received with a message constructed of text that he clipped from other sources. So, you know, like, jumbling together mm -hmm. different uh, clipped words. And the words said, the pace isn't any slower. In fact, it's just one big. And this was <laughs> clipped from the comic strip Smidkins. So, he's, he's like, even clipping full sentences and constructing this weird letter. On October 27th, the Chronicle received a Halloween card that was sent directly to reporter Paul Avery. The letter misspelled Avery's name as Averly, and the number four, like dash teen, was interpreted as a possible reference to an unidentified 14th victim. Letter 17 was addressed to the Los Angeles Times and postmarked on March 13th, 1971. In it, the Zodiac suggested he was responsible for the unsolved murder of Sherry Jo Bates near Riverside County College on October 30th. So this was when he was like, oh yeah, no, that one in Riverside that you think is the connection? Yeah, I did it. And then a postcard, which is his letter number 17, was sent to Chronicle reporter Paul Avery, postmarked March 22nd, 1971. Once again, Zodiac misspelled his name as Averly. And the phrase sought victim 12 was interpreted as a reference to Donna Lass. So this postcard number 18 was how they were like, oh, we think Donna's a Zodiac victim as well. Oh, okay. Okay. So again, but we don't have full evidence that he did those. Yeah. It's, it's why this victim list is just ever growing. I mean, he's why believe him kind of thing. You know, he's saying he did this and it's unsolved, but he could be saying that about, I mean, any killing he wants. And Absolutely. because his MO is so random, I mean, Who's they're to all say believable. He didn't? Exactly. Then the search for the Zodiac actually led investigators across the United States to Albany, New York. Oh, that is about as far from California as you can get in the U.S. It really is. And so they were at the office of Albany Times Union newspaper, who had received an envelope postmarked August 1st, 1973. So we're a couple years in the future now. Because mm -hmm. like I said, Zodiac kind of dropped off in the early 70s. He kind of just stopped. And this letter that the Albany Times Union newspaper received had the crossed circle in the corner of the envelope instead of the return address. So essentially saying, hey, you know who I am. Yeah. Zodiac. The letter read, you are wrong. I'm not dead or in the hospital. I'm alive and well, and I'm going to start killing again. Below is the name and location of my next victim. But you had better hurry because I'm going to kill her August 10th at 5 p.m. when this shift change. Albany is a nice town. So they're like, oh, fuck. Okay, is Zodiac in Albany now? He's here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Below the message, the writer included three rows of symbols. And according to an FBI report, the Bureau cryptonologist deciphered the coded message to read. And the beginning of this is redacted. So we start um, at the end of a sentence. Albany Medical Center, period. This is only the beginning, period. 
So something that we don't know exactly what was discovered yeah. has to do with the Albany Medical Center. But Well, I mean, it could be a name. It could be a name. Um, something that they didn't want to share. But investigators were unable to identify any murders that could explain the vague reference to a victim on August 10th. So they looked to see if they could find someone who was killed on that date, and uh, they, they couldn't. And handwriting experts could not determine if the new letter was prepared by the writer of the Zodiac letters due to the lack of significant characteristics in the Albany message. But this possibility could not be eliminated based on the limited analysis. Like, there wasn't much in this letter for them to really analyze. Yeah. More letters continue to come in the mid-70s. The Chronicle received another, January 29th, 1974, and the writer of the letter alluded to a possible suicide in another quote from the Gilbert and Sullivan musical, The Mikado. Uh, the notion, me-37, SFPD-0, which was interpreted as like a box score, like Zodiac 37, police, none. Yeah. Like, this guy is seriously so cocky. It's driving me crazy. On February 14th, 1974, the Chronicle received a postcard, and in it, the writer referred to the SLA, or the Symbionese Liberation Army, which was... Oh, Patty Hearst. (laughs) Yeah, Patty Hearst, uh, which was, you know, the group that was responsible for her abduction. And this message was signed, a friend. So apparently he's a friend of the SLA. Okay. May 8th, 1974, Chronicle got another card, and in this message was from a citizen that complained about the glorification of violence in newspaper ads for the movie The Badlands, about the killing spree by Richard Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend. So, Zodiac, now he's just literally writing letters to send them letters about anything. He's like, this is a violence that's being portrayed in these ads for this movie? No, you're glorifying them. As if he's not doing the exact same. I'm like, you're a murderer. Yeah. So, letter 22 was also sent to the Chronicle and postmarked July 8th, 1974. And in this letter, the writer complained that Chronicle columnist Count Marco Spinelli suffered from a serious psychological disorder and should be sent back in the hellhole. And it was signed, The Red Phantom. Who the hell is the Red Phantom? That's another name Zodiac gave himself. Okay. Later letters that were sent were not able to be authenticated to Zodiac. And in April 2004, the San Francisco Police Department marked the case inactive, citing caseload pressure and resource demands, and they effectively closed the case. However, they reopened the case sometime before March 2007, And to this day, the case is open in Napa County and in the city of Riverside. And in May 2018. Recently. Very recently. And you'll, you'll know why here in a second. The Vallejo Police Department announced their intention to attempt to collect the Zodiac Killer's DNA from the back of the stamps that he used during his correspondence. So... This analysis in a very Mm. private laboratory is expected to utilize a very advanced new technique that's able to separate the DNA from the glue on the back of the stamp. And they're hoping that 
the Zodiac Killer could be caught in a similar fashion to the Golden State Killer. And as of May 2018, uh, a Vallejo police detective said that the results were expected in several weeks. We haven't heard anything more, but I do remember this being announced that they were going to try to, you know, get the Zodiac. And we even said that. Yeah. That how much we want Zodiac to be caught because of genetics and familial DNA. But this case, I mean, it's so bizarre that that whole, like, everything he's done and all his different MOs. And we, there are so many questions. We have so few answers as to what's going on, why he did what he did. Even with him sending two dozen letters in his writing, like, out there. He yeah. created the cipher. Like, he's a maniacal, like, murderous genius in, in my head. Like, genius in the fact that his IQ, I'm sure, is very up there on the scale. Yeah. Much like a lot of other serial killers. I mean, yeah, he gives me Ted Kaczynski vibes. So much. Which, I mean, he was after Zodiac, but it's, I don't know. I don't think they think Ted Kaczynski is Zodiac, but they mm, literally no. have no idea who. I mean, fair. So, yeah, that is very horrific Zodiac case that, my God, I really hope I can give you guys updates as their DNA analysis I know. I am, progresses. God, I cannot wait until the episode when you're like, hey guys, so for our current news, they caught the Zodiac. I almost literally feel like we'll do a special episode because I mean, that's so yeah. big that it'll be like Wednesday at three and you're going to get a notification if you subscribe if there's a new episode out. <laughs> Know that if we ever do that, it means we've got something really important to tell you guys. Yeah, if we ever have a <laughs> rando episode that pops up and you're like, hold on, it's not Tuesday. There's a reason why. There's a reason. So, that's Zodiac. What case do you have? Well, before I get into my case, because I need it, I know you need it, <laughs> b- bottle number two. Bottle number two! And again, Bulgariana Gonza. Y'all, I'm really enjoying this wine. Uh, um, this is one of my favorite wines we've done in a long time. Me too. It's very easy drinking. Go Would go well with food, but also good alone. Yeah. So if y'all are at any specialty wine stores or any wine store in general and you see this wine or even another Gonza wine, highly suggest it. Yep. Give it a try. New grapes are always so fun to try. But make sure you have a strong person to get these corks because They're I have not been to there. the gym in a couple weeks and this bottle knows. It's a workout. Okay, I've topped off our glasses and now do you want to jump into your case? Okay. I'm scared and nervous and excited for what one you picked because I really don't know. Uh, you should be. All the things you should be. <laughs> All the fears, I should have them. They are legit. They are, I'm not making them up. They're real fears. So the case that I'll be doing today is the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Ooh, you went there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I guess I went did. to Zodiac, so. Yeah, I mean, true. <laughs> the sources I used, an article from the lineup titled Phantom Killer, The Unsolved Mystery of the Texarkana Murders by Oren Gray. The New York Daily News, an article titled Murder Spree in Texas at Hands of Phantom Killer Remains a Mystery by Mara Bovson, and Wikipedia, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders Wikipedia page. So the Texarkana Moonlight Murders rocked the sleepy southern town of Texarkana, Texas in 1946. Oh, this is older than I thought it was. Yeah, it's like 
73 years old. Which I honestly thought it was in the 70s because, you know, everything happened in the 70s. I mean, so that was, was my assumption. In the 70s, yeah. But no, <laughs> like, this literally, was the 40s. No idea how anyone made it to 1980. No. Like, I'm, how are y'all alive? <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure if you look at, like, I don't know, a population graph of the U.S., it had to dip. I mean, it didn't, <laughs> but like, but I feel like every big barter happened in the 70s. Yep. So Texarkana is a city in northeastern Texas and also southwestern Arkansas, and it's just a few miles from the Louisiana state line. So Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texarkana. Is it actually in both Texas and Arkansas? Yeah. Oh my god, I didn't realize it did. I thought it was just in Texas, but it was right by Arkansas, so they were like, oh yeah, we're close. No, the town is split in half. I mean, technically, it's two towns. It's Texarkana, Texas, and Texarkana, Arkansas. But Just like um, State Line Road is goes through the middle of it, and it's the state line. Well, it's just like Kansas City. Yeah. Kansas City, Missouri. Kansas City, Kansas. Yeah. So police on either side of the state line struggled to work as, like, one cohesive unit, while these killings possessed the iconic quality of, like, an urban legend. Yeah. These weren't normal murders. If there is a normal murder. But young couples parked at the end of a lonely country road were savaged after the sun went down in Texarkana. Okay, the way that is written is really terrifying. I just got chills. So this also kind of harkens back to something I said at the beginning of this episode. Some claim that the infamous campfire tale of lovers who hear a report of a hook-handed killer on the radio discover a bloody hook hanging from their car door is actually traced back to the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. So you're telling me that what you had in mind for this topic of like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like hook on a handle is actually what you picked. The one that's very much epitomizes that urban legend. Yes, that is correct. Okay, well, I just wanted to make sure to point that out. Well, I mean, I got on the idea of, you know, that must be what Lover's Lane murders are. And then when I found this case and with saw it. the connection, I was like, <laughs> okay, that's, yes, that's this what is Lover's my case. Lane murders are. So this killer, the Texarkana Moonlight murderer, is described by witnesses as wearing a white mask or a sack with holes cut for the eyes. What is with the costumes? Right? <laughs> uh, Why? So, yeah, horrifying. And this killer was also dubbed as the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer, which is a name that, like a lot of this case, is just kind of ready-made for cinema. Well, and he's also ready-made with his ghost costume. Like, really, could you have gone any easier than that? Right. Like, like, come on. You just went, like, totally, like, eight-year-old, I don't have a Halloween costume, but I have a white sheet, so I'm just going to cut out some eye holes. I mean, yes. (laughs) I don't think that's the same scenario, but I I couldn't say either way. No, I'm just saying as far as like thinking out the costume aspect. Oh yeah, I mean it's basically one click above sharpieing your face to and saying that that's your disguise. Oh my god, put on a hat! Don't sharpie. That's intense. Yeah, it was. It's a thing. Like some bank robbers, like ten years ago did it as their disguise and literally, oh like, God. took a black Sharpie to <laughs> their face. Serious? And obviously you can tell that it's like, oh, that's Mark with some marker on his face. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, marker. Um, 
<laughs> Anyways, yeah, but this is one click above that in oh my like God, that originality. Really happened. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. Yeah, if you look up like Sharpie face robbery, I don't know. However, Google works. <laughs> Sharpie face robbery. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might, you'll probably find porn. Honestly, you'll probably find porn. <laughs> you'll just find someone with like a big penis on their cheek. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Sharpie on the face, that's what you find. Google that. I mean, you search Sharpie face robbery frat house. Yeah, that's, <laughs> there you go. Um, but no, so he wore a, either a white mask or a sack over his face. And authorities believed that he killed five people. In just 10 weeks' time. Jeez, it's quick. Three others, including his first two victims, survived their attacks. So he attacked eight people in 10 weeks. And it's almost five one a week. Killed. Yeah. So at around 11.45 p.m. on Friday, February 22nd, 1946, 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, 19-year-old Mary Jeanne Larry, were parked on a secluded road after having seen a movie together. They were just about 100 yards away from a nearby neighborhood. About 10 minutes later, at 11.55, a man wearing a white cloth mask, which, similar to what you said earlier, resembled a pillowcase with the <laughs> eye holes cut out, appeared at Hollis's driver's side door and shined a flashlight in the window. That's you know so how, annoying. like, cops do, but right. obviously not a cop. Well, and Zodiac did that too, which... That yeah, there were a I lot thought. of things I... when you said, when you were going through a case, I was like, hmm, that sounds like something I just researched. Well, like I'm saying, I feel like there is this traditional, like, action a murderer takes when they mm-hmm. go to attack someone that's at a lover's lane. And that's why this is a whole topic. I mean, yeah, it's, it is a thing for a reason. So Hollis is unsure if this is just a guy pranking them. So he tells them that he has the wrong person. And to this, the man responds... I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. Wow. Threats from the beginning. But I think he does want to kill him. I think that was a lie. Yeah. I'm going to go with he's not being truthful. He's not being his authentic self. No. Be authentic. Both Hollis and Larry were ordered out of the driver's side door, and this man ordered Hollis to take off his pants. Oh, my God. Okay. After he complied, this man struck him in the head twice with a pistol fracturing his skull. And Larry would later say that she thought that Hollis had been shot with how loud it was, but that was just the sound of his skull fracturing. That's horrifying. So thinking that the assailant just wanted to rob them, Larry showed him Hollis's wallet, and after which she was struck with a blunt object. The assailant then ordered her to stand, and when she did, he told her to run. Initially, she tried to run towards a ditch, but the assailant ordered her to run in a different direction, to go up the road. Larry spotted an old car that was parked off the road and ran towards it, but it was empty. Again, she was confronted by the attacker, and he asked her, why are you running? No. And she responded that, you know, you you told me to do so, and he called her a liar before knocking her down and sexually assaulting her with the barrel of his gun. After the assault, Larry fled on foot, and she ran a half mile to a nearby house. She attempted to call for a car that was passing by the residence, but the car just drove by her. 
Larry was able to awaken the residents of this house and phone police. Meanwhile, Hollis had regained consciousness and had managed to actually flag down a passerby on a nearby road. The motorist left Hollis at the scene and drove to a nearby funeral home where they were able to call the police. But they left him there. Yeah. I mean, he had head wounds and stuff. I I would be uncomfortable trying to move him, too. Oh, so, so he had only, like, kind of, like, woken up and sat up yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he's, he's not, like, running around and stuff. Honestly, I'm not sure even how he was able to flag on a motorist. Yeah. Within 30 minutes, Bowie County Sheriff Bill Presley and three other officers arrived at the scene of the attack, but the assailant had already left. Larry was hospitalized overnight with minor head wounds, while Hollis was hospitalized for several days to recover from his multiple skull fractures, but both of them survived the attack. I can't believe they survived that. Like, literally, this was so horrific, and they both were split up in different directions. Mm -hmm. It's like the killer just, like, disappeared. Yeah. Like, he didn't finish the the job, which is horrible. And neither of them were shot, which... Right. I'm glad they survived, obviously, but I don't understand how they survived. Me too. So in March, Richard Griffin and Pollyanne Moore were found dead in their parked car at the end of a secluded road. The couple who only been dating about six weeks, had had dinner with Griffin's sister and her boyfriend earlier in the night. And Griffin, who's 29, was a veteran, and he made his living in carpentry and painting. He was shot fatally in the back of the head. Moore, his girlfriend, was only 17, and she was living in a nearby boarding house with her cousin, and she was also shot fatally in the back of the head. That's execution style. That's brutal. Yeah. And if it were one person, you know, you could say maybe they didn't know. Like, you know, maybe it was sneak attack. But with both of them, I mean. That's not a sneak attack. At least one of them was fully aware of what was happening. Exactly. You can't sneak attack too. Yeah. On the evening of Saturday, April 13th, Betty Jo Booker, who was 15, was playing her alto saxophone in her regular weekly gig with her band. And around 1.30 a.m. Sunday morning, on the 14th, her boyfriend, 16-year-old Paul Martin, arrived to pick her up from the performance. The two of them had just recently begun dating after being friends since, like, kindergarten. Uh So they were, like, that couple. Yes. that They finally got together, and everyone who'd been, like... Secretly wishing for it was they've been like, shipping yes. them for years. Yeah, their parents probably even shipped them, or uh, were the opposite and were like, no, but you know, who knows? Yeah. So the two of them, they're dating, and they wanted to spend some alone time together after he picked her up from performance. This was the last time that either of them were seen alive. Martin's body was found at around six thirty a.m. that morning. He was lying on his left side by the northern edge of North Park Road. Blood was found further down on the other side of the road by a fence, so he either was moved or was able to move before he finally died. Yeah. He'd been shot four times, once through the nose. The nose? The nose. Again, through the left fourth rib from behind, a third time through the right hand, and then finally the back of the neck. 
So really, that final one was the only one that seemed to have any intent to kill. Right. Booker's body was not found until about five hours later at 11.30 a.m., almost two miles away from Martin's body, and she was behind a tree. She was found on her back, fully clothed, with her right hand in the pocket of her buttoned overcoat. She'd been shot twice, once through the chest and once in the face. Oh. And the weapon was the same one that was used in the first double murder, a thirty-two automatic Colt pistol. Martin's forty-six Ford Club Coupe was found three miles away from Booker's body and about a mile and a half from his body. And it was parked outside of Spring Lake Park with the keys still in it. The authorities were not sure who was shot first, and examinations of the bodies indicated that both of them had put up just a huge struggle. Both of them fought for their lives. So lots of defensive wounds and just showing that they weren't going down easy. Yeah. And remember, this is a pair of kids, 15 and 16. Yeah. At this time, the Texarkana police were certain that these attacks were the work of the same person. Well, and it's like, just because the term serial killer wasn't around yet, definitely doesn't mean they didn't happen, as we've discussed. Yeah, I mean, we've had, we've talked about serial killers from much earlier than this. I mean, Well, think about like AJ's Holmes, it was like the 20s. I mean, even like Jack the Ripper. Right. Way before the 40s. In the 1800s, right? Yeah. So obviously serial killers were a thing, and honestly... I am sure you could look back at some of the indigenous tribes and whatnot, and, like, it was totally a thing. Like, think about it. Like, it was probably more a way of life. I mean, murders... And survival. Murder's been a thing as long as Humans have been a thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, because of how big this case was finally being understood, the FBI and the Texas Rangers were both coming in on the case. Hundreds of tips were pouring in, and police interviewed scores of Texarkana citizens, but none of it stopped the violence. On Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., 37-year-old Virgil Starks, who was a farmer and a welder, was in his house on his 500-acre farm about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. He turned on his favorite weekly radio show, and his wife, Katie had given him a heating pad for his sore back. So they're just married couple in their mid-30s, having a quiet night at home. Yeah. He's sitting down in his armchair in the sitting room, and while Katie was in her bedroom, lying on the bed in her nightgown, she heard something from the backyard, and she asked Virgil to turn down the radio. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading the May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, two shots were fired into the back of his head (gasps) from a closed window three feet away. Katie didn't hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard just what she thought was the sound of breaking glass. She thought Virgil must have dropped something, and so she gets out of bed to see what happened. As she entered the doorway to the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then suddenly slump back into his chair. He stood up? Yeah. Like, that was his reflex reactions. Shot in the head, stands up. But he falls back into his chair, and then she sees the blood. She ran to him and lifted his head, but he was dead. He was gone. And when she realized that, 
she ran to the phone to call police. And she doesn't know he was shot. She she just sees blood and her husband dead. and Something happened and she doesn't something know. Something happened, yeah. She rang the phone two times before she was shot twice in the face from the same window. This was prior to 911, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. God, I mean, did you just have to, like, know the number of the... The police, police department? Honestly, I don't know. you probably would just call the operator. 411? Well, I think at the time, Zero oh. was the operator. I mean, this is And the then 40s be like, hey, know. connect me to the police. Oh my god, yeah, this and is then, when like, there was switch the switchers. Board. Yeah. yeah. So I don't, they're not called switchers, but switchboard yeah. operators. Yeah. So, obviously before 911, which is why she had to call twice, and mm-hmm. that's what yeah. was too much time. So, one of these bullets entered her right cheek, exited behind her left ear. Oh, my God. The other went in just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging under her tongue. She dropped to her knees, but she managed to get back on her feet. She ran to get a pistol, but was blinded by her own blood running into her eyes. She heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch, and she thought she was going to be killed. So she stumbled towards her bedroom that was near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps and into the side-screened porch through the back door. Yeah. She heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned around and ran through the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and then into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind just this river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. I mean, yeah, she was shot twice in the face and she is somehow running. Yeah. And like her heart's beating more, so blood's mm-hmm. bumping more. And well, this is very, oh my gosh. I I have this mixture of this is horrific, but also she's like this heroine who is like, I'm not going to die. She is a fucking badass like she's like no you shoot me in the face and i'm not going down well, i mean and i'm f- gonna try to leave a note yeah her first thought when she gets shot is to go grab a gun like is to go grab the pistol in the bedroom yeah and then when she realized that's not gonna work is to leave a note like she is a badass because also she's at this time she's still barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown yeah So she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house, but no one was home. Oh my god. Then she turned and she ran 50 yards to another neighbor, A.V. Prater's house. Prater answered her call for help, and she just gasped, Virgil's dead. And then she collapsed. I just can't even begin to imagine what it would be like for someone to come to your front door in Mm -hmm. that state. Where it's like, obviously, you let them in because, you know, something's going on and, like, this is bigger than you and they need protection. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like no matter what, you're like, yeah, come in. And you shut your door and, like, lock every lock. Because, again, you don't know what's going on and what you've been brought into. But it's almost like that, to me, being brought into something that could be, I mean, horrible is not worth shutting the door in someone's face. Exactly. You know? Well, So you bring them in not knowing and also... I'm sure you're in shock. Yeah. And then part of me is like, well, maybe, you know, he was like, oh my God, this is Katie, my neighbor. 
But I don't, I don't think so. I mean, because you have to imagine she has bullet wounds in her face. She's, she's probably unrecognizable. Her jaw is basically falling off at this point. I don't, I don't think he had any idea who this woman was who's at his door. Yeah. But it was like, get in the house. Yeah. But by the time police arrived, the killer was gone. I'm not surprised. So much commotion and things had happened. Of course, he's going to hightail his ass out of there. So at this point, swarms of reporters who conjured up this terrifying nickname, the Phantom Killer, descended on the town. The Texarkana Gazette printed a front page color photo of the red-handled flashlight that this killer had left at the Starks' house in hopes that someone would recognize it. Nobody did. And you you can find this photo uh, online. And I will say, for the 40s, for a small town to print a color photo of this... That's or huge. To that, that's huge. I mean, that... I doubt they were able to print that there. I, I would not be surprised if they had to have someone in Shreveport or Dallas or Little Rock print that photo for them. Absolutely. Theories spread wildly about the killer's identity. The killer's targeting of couples and lack of other identifiable motives, such as burglary or revenge, led a lot of people in the area to believe that this killer was just some sort of sex maniac. I mean, the only thing that he has in common with, or that is in common with all of these, is that it's couples. Right. Most of which are Lover's Lane couples. So if he's almost like peeping Tom, looking at them, and is like, I'm going to kill him. Because that, that or, gives him the urge. That or someone with, like, this twisted sense of morality who feels the need to, like, stop sex. I have no oh, idea. Oh, so it really could be, like, either end of that spectrum. Yeah. If that were the reasoning. Yeah, but that's just the, that's the uh, rumor thought running through town. Yeah. Nearly 400 people were arrested in connection with the killings. 400? 400. In the 40s? Yeah. They were literally like, you're a man, you're arrested. Basically. Because I'm not imagining Texarkana is a very big city in the 40s. Oh, yeah. I mean, at this time, it's a town of like 20,000 people. In June, Life magazine published a report about how the community was coping with the idea of a monster in their midst. Citizens tight in the grip of mass terror were taking desperate measures to protect themselves. Doors were being booby-trapped with pans, bases, cans, and flower pots filled with loose silverware or nails. Loaded shotguns in each room and lights blazing from dusk to dawn became the norm in the town. People were buying guns and guard dogs, and stores ran out of blinds and window shades. Honestly, interesting to think that most people didn't have them, but maybe that wasn't really a thing. Yeah. Like, not really a necessity. Honestly, though, sorry, I keep like... But if you think about it in the 40s, I don't think there was as much fear as we have nowadays. Like, nowadays, the idea of not having blinds on your window is like... That's weird. What's wrong with you? That, like, comes with the house or comes with the apartment. Well, and also, I mean, this is a rural community. So it's not like, oh, you put up your blinds and curtains because your neighbor is 20 feet away and their window faced your window. Your neighbor's maybe a mile away. I know. I mean, there, there are neighborhoods and things in this town, but... It's a smaller rural community. It's There's a lot of farms and ranches and houses that are not close together. 
Honestly, this is making me a little bit scary at the fact that I do always have my blinds open because I like having natural light. I like being able to see the sky when I sleep and eh, the sun wakes me up. Same, but we live in apartments, so it's fine. I know, but my so neighbor across... So when it's a scale of wall. Truth. Truth. But, I mean, there are, there are bugs that are getting my plants and that's somehow surprising. I, I guess mean, they fly. If Spider-Man is going to, like, climb up the building to kill me... I- at that point, like, kudos. If Spider-Man's gonna kill you, then we've been reading the comics wrong. Yes. So, on June 28th, 1946, police tracking a stolen car arrested 21-year-old Peggy Stevens Swinney. She was the new bride of a local guy who was known for causing trouble, 29-year-old U.L. Lee Swinney. The couple who'd married just a few hours earlier. So when I said, like, new bride, I meant... She's brand new. new. Like, still in her dress. Like, 2004 Britney new. Not you, Britney. Britney Spears. <laughs> Thank you for the I don't know if you got married in 2004, <laughs> but I hope not. I didn't. Okay. I just, was in high school. I could just make it sure. People <laughs> get married in high school. This is the 40s in a small town in Texas. But, yes, they had been married a few hours earlier, and they were honeymooning... By indulging in their favorite hobby, stealing cars and taking joyrides. I mean, whatever gets you off. I mean, don't steal cars. (laughs) Just kidding. About two weeks after her arrest, police nabbed her husband. Yuel, who'd been in trouble with the law since childhood, asked a really odd question as they drove him to the station. He asked, will they give me the chair? And the officers assured him stealing cars is not punishable by death. But this question sparked suspicion that they had, by accident, nabbed the Phantom Killer. Because why would someone think that? Like, just being arrested? Yeah, for stealing a car, asking if he's going to get the chair. Yeah. And also, at this time, Swinney's wife offered detectives incriminating tales and described one of the murders. But... Because of the law at the time, she was legally barred from testifying against her husband. That's how it works. And the rest of the evidence that they had was too weak for any kind of conviction. Swinney went to jail, but he went as a habitual car thief, not as a murderer. Right. And he was behind bars for most of the rest of his life, but not for these crimes. Or... All and his other things. is this when the crime stopped? They did stop after this. But he died of cancer in 1994. So in 2014, James Presley, who's a Texarkana native, wrote what he considered to be the definitive book on the murders. The Phantom Killer, Unlocking the Mystery of the Texarkana Serial Murders, The Story of a Town in Terror, it's a very long That's title. That's a very long title. <laughs> In his book, he laid out enough evidence that he claims proves that Swinney was responsible for all five of the Phantom slayings. Others, though, remain unconvinced. A 1948 cold case involving the disappearance of 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter from Texarkana is thought by some to have been the work of the Phantom Killer, but... At that time, Swinney was already in prison. And in 1999 and 2000, an anonymous woman contacted surviving family members of the Phantom's victims to apologize for what her father had done. But 
UL Swinney never had a daughter. I guess that we know of. Like, let's be real. He could have... That we know of. ...been, I don't know, thrown his dick around. Maybe. Some have insisted for decades that Swinney had to be the Phantom, but there were also a lot of other candidates. Right. One of the strongest was University of Arkansas college student H.B. Tennyson, also known as Duty. Honestly, if a college kid could pull this off, that blows my mind. Yeah. Well, the evidence is kind of supportive of it. So in November of 1948, after all of these murders, and also after the disappearance of Virginia Carpenter, if she was a victim of the Phantom Killer, right? at the age of 18, he killed himself. And... In his suicide note, he confessed to the murders. But, oh, this is just like I was saying in Zodiac with letters and written things. Mm -hmm. That's not evidence. I mean, it sucks because you want that to be evidence, but it is just the same as hearsay. Yeah. Because you can write anything. I know. I could, I mean, I could write a letter and confess to something right now that, that gives no credence to... To the, the fact that you case. actually did it. No, yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not... A written letter of confession, to me, is not a confession. Because we have had and covered way too many false confession cases oh, to yeah. knowing that even a spoken confession is not evidence. That is not the way our law works. Evidence mm-hmm. is evidence. Evidence is not spoken word. It's not written word. It's something stronger. Or at least it should be. It's not always... It's not always. Yeah. But it should be. I absolutely. It should be scientific. Yeah. So other suspects included an escaped prisoner of war and an L.A. resident who believed that he may have committed these crimes while in a coma. Regardless of the killer's true identity, the town he traumatized has never been the same no. since the spring of 1946. And officially... The case remains unsolved. I can't believe we both picked unsolved cases. Yeah. Yeah. We picked weirdly similar cases. We did. There are so many similarities between the two. Like, even down to the costume aspect. Yeah. Which is blowing my mind. And the fact that, like, both of them started, like, with Lover's Lane, but extended into other aspects of killing. So, I think with this, we need to jump into postmortem. Absolutely. I need your thoughts on this, because I'm torn. These cases are (laughs) both horrendous. And I think the difference is, I mean, my case really is that epitome of the idea of a lover's lane murder, like, hook-on-the-handle kind of monster. And, I mean, the Zodiac is a whole other... Yeah, I mean, the Zodiac's the Zodiac. You know, was also very involved in lover's lane murders, but the Zodiac terrifies people to this day. And while in my case, I mean, the entire town of Texarkana went into lockdown, yeah, kind of San Francisco did the same thing. I mean, I'm torn. What are your thoughts? Well, and I will say, when you were saying yours, I was like, oh, man, yours, like, really encapsulates the whole Lover's Lane murders. But then you went into a couple of the other murders, and like mine, it stretched beyond just Lover's Lane. And so I was like, oh, okay. We both strayed a bit, like not all of the murders were at a lover's lane. It was just that beginning factor. And so I honestly think we're on this pretty level playing field where 
you have the case that is that epitome of the hook on the handle of the door. And mine's the Zodiac, which everyone knows about because of the ciphers and the letters and how much he communicated with law enforcement in the newspapers and yet has somehow still maintained this mystery of his identity. And granted, you know, it's earlier or like, you know, it's not as old as yours, but yours like, I would almost say is one of the beginnings of this Lover's Lane murders becoming a factor. Yeah. And And so I don't really know how to distinguish between the two. Well, and one thing I did want to note about my case that I didn't mention is, I mean, I think as far as popular culture and influence goes, I really think the, the Texarkana Moonlight murders really built the foundation for that. Because it's, it was also made into a movie in the 70s. The movie The Town That Dreaded Sundown, which yes, is also... I've heard of that. Texarkana's nickname. So that movie was based on this case. And it came out around the same time as like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a lot of those like slasher films. But Terrifying. This is one of those that is based on... I don't know. Based on is a strong word. The movie itself is like, this movie is true. Only names have been changed. There was a lot more change than that. But it was heavily, heavily influenced by these events. And I think either the filmmaker or the writer of the movie was from Texarkana and was living there when all of this was going down. So I'm going to just pop in and say, I think we have ourselves a draw. I'm no. Gonna... Uh, mm. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I really do. So here's yeah. my reasoning. We both have cases that are some of the most horrific Lover's Lane type cases, but there are so many different things that they both add to this theme. You know, yours was earlier, yours is still unsolved, mine's the Zodiac, he started with Lover's Lane, still unsolved, but he has like the ciphers, and both of these have had so many things come from them, whether it be helping to identify another case or helping to create a story, a movie, a book. Both of ours have legs that have gone far beyond just what happened. Mm -hmm. And they're both still very much alive to this day because of the fact that they're unsolved. Yeah. And I think because of the way they intertwine, we can't pick between the two. No, I a hundred percent agree. I think that, with the two cases we had, with the influence they have, definitely draw. We're going to have to just figure it out. I guess, well, I mean, honestly, we'll just collaborate we'll on collaborate. a topic. We'll collaborate but for next week's episode. One thing that I did want to mention that I did just look up because I wanted closure. And I think one thing that we can also agree on this case is that Katie is a fucking badass. Total badass. And so she survived the attack. She eventually remarried, and she passed away in 1994 at the age of 84. And she was buried next to Virgil. And eventually when her husband that she remarried to passed away as well, he wanted to be buried next to them as well. So she's between her husbands. Yeah, I love that. she's such a fucking badass that literally the only thing that could take her down was old age. You know what? That's something to strive to. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. If you liked it, if you loved it, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or any other platforms that have rating tools. I know Spotify and Google Play don't, but I have have no idea if the others do. But I know Apple Podcasts does. Uh, Give us those five stars. Let us know what you enjoyed. And yeah. Also... Be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Check out our website, bloodandwinepodcast.com. Send us an email, bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. If you have anything you want to tell us, maybe you know of a case that you would love us to do, like literally let us know. Yeah. Or if you have a favorite wine you'd love us to feature, tell oh, us absolutely. and we'll try to find it. We love recommendations honestly, from anything from episode topics to cases to cover to wines we should drink. We love it all and we appreciate your recommendations. Absolutely. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.